This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, in for Terry Gross. Novelist Julie Otsuka has just been awarded the Carnegie Medal for Excellence for her book, The Swimmers. It's about a group of people who go to the local pool to escape from their problems. Vogue magazine and Kirkus Review listed the book as one of the year's best of 2022. It's now out in paperback. Otsuka's two previous novels were acclaimed as well. When the Emperor Was Divine is based on the experiences of her mother and grandparents when they were forced into Japanese internment camps during World War II. Her book, The Buddha in the Attic, which won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, is an historical novel about the women known as picture brides. These were women in the early 20th century who emigrated to America from Japan the only way they legally could, by marrying a man who already was living here. In Otsuka's latest novel, The Swimmers, one of the swimmers is in the early stages of dementia. Terry Gross spoke with Julie Otsuka last year when her novel was first published. Julie Otsuka, welcome to Fresh Air. I I love your writing, so I'm very glad you're here. I want to start with a reading from the first page of The Swimmers, your new novel, um, because I want our listeners to hear your style of writing and how the accumulation of detail just kind of keeps building through the book. So would you read the opening for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. The pool is located deep underground in a large cavernous chamber many feet beneath the streets of our town. Some of us come here because we are injured and need to heal. We suffer from bad backs, fallen arches, shattered dreams, broken hearts, anxiety, melancholia, anhedonia, the usual above-ground afflictions. Others of us are employed at the college nearby and prefer to take our lunch breaks down below, in the waters, far away from the harsh glares of our colleagues and screens. Some of us come here to escape, if only for an hour, our disappointing marriages on land. Many of us live in the neighborhood and simply love to swim. One of us, Alice, a retired lab technician now in the early stages of dementia, comes here because she always has. So as we heard in the reading, one of the swimmers, Alice, is in the early stages of dementia. And as the novel progresses, she loses more and more of her memory until she's moved to a facility. Your mother died of dementia-related causes. Was it frontotemporal dementia like in the book? It was, and it was Pick's disease, which is a form of frontotemporal dementia. Yeah, in the book, you describe it as being very rare. What, what is it? How does it compare to Alzheimer's, just so we understand what's going on? Well, for one thing, the onset can be much, much earlier. So if, I think for my mother, she might have even manifested symptoms in her 50s, definitely in her 60s. Although I think it was hard for us to realize what was her and what was her disease, especially in the early years before she was even diagnosed. But um, with Pick's disease, you often get changes in personality, and the decline can be, for my mother, it was much, much slower. I think her decline took place over at least 20 years. But I think the personality change is probably the main difference from people with Alzheimer's. Could you tell that it was happening? Because that's that's one of the questions in the book, you know, like, um, for example, like a crack appears in the pool that the swimmers go to. And the people wonder, 
you know, uh, many of us remain anxious because the truth is we don't know what it is or what it means or if it has any meaning at all. Maybe the crack is just a crack, nothing more, nothing less. Maybe it's a rupture, a chasm. How deep is it? Who's to blame for it? Can we reverse it? And most importantly, why us? It's no coincidence, I'm sure, that those questions are the questions we ask when symptoms begin to appear, like, does this have any meaning? Is it serious? Is it nothing? Am I exaggerating? Um, if if it's a problem, like what or who is to blame for it? And um, you know, and why me? Why us? Why is this happening to us? I think it, it's sometimes hardest for the people closest to the person who's suffering from dementia to see what is happening. I think there's a lot of denial going on, probably in the early years. But I remember actually the first time that I realized something was slightly off is I think I went home one year for Christmas and my mother was always very, very good with her hands. And we were baking these crescent cookies and they just didn't look right on the baking sheet. You know, they were not, they were not neat little crescent rolls, which is what she would have made before. So that was a very clear visual representation that something was not right. But I don't think we really questioned her repeating herself early on. It just seemed like one of her quirks or something that maybe she was even doing intentionally. And I wish actually that we realized earlier that the way she was behaving, it wasn't something that she you know, had any real control over. But um, you know, it took us a long time to, to, I think, before we even brought her into a neurologist to get a diagnosis. I think it took many, many years. What would have been different had you gotten an earlier diagnosis? It's not like it's a reversible... Nothing, probably nothing. Although I guess the one thing that could have been different is that we might have had a little bit more compassion for her early on. That's a big difference. It's a huge difference. It's difficult to live with somebody whose personality is changing and is, you know, at a certain point, they're not the person that you remember but they can't help it. But I think it, it took us a long time to realize that. You know, in the novel, when so many memories are starting to disappear, one of the things the mother remembers is being sent to a Japanese-American incarceration camp when she was young, when she was a child. Did your mother hang on to that memory when others were disappearing? She did. Those memories for her were very strong. Um, they they remain with her till you know, till close to the end of her life. You know, I remember one day she just began to tell a story about her last day of school at Lincoln Elementary in Berkeley. Before being forced into the camp? The day before they had to leave, yeah. And she just began to tell that story over and over and over again. And I hadn't heard that story before. I mean, perhaps my father had, I'm not sure. But uh, What was the story? That her teacher asked her to stand up and then told everyone in the class that Haruko was my mother's Japanese name, would be leaving the next day. And would they please tell her goodbye? So the, the entire class said goodbye to her, which I think was probably an act of kindness. But she felt very singled out and very ashamed and embarrassed. Did the teacher explain why she was going away? You know, I don't know. It's a really good question. I wish that I'd asked my mother that when she was still lucid. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I often wonder, what did that teacher say to her students? Did they wonder why their their Japanese classmates were suddenly disappeared? And, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot for, especially for my first novel, and I've spoken to people who were alive during World War II. And I remember one woman, a white woman, who had been, I think, in junior high, 
during World War II. And and she just said, you know, one day her classmate, who was a good friend of hers, was there, and the, and the next day she was gone, and she didn't know what had happened to her. So I, I don't know what was told to the children back then. I don't know what their parents told to them either. It's a, it's a good question. In, in the novel, you write, she remembers to warn her daughter at the end of every phone call that the FBI will check up on you soon. Yes. <laughs> How does the FBI figure into your family's story? My grandfather was arrested by the FBI on December 8th, 1941, so the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Uh, he went to work. Uh, he worked for a Japanese-owned mercantile company, and uh, he never came home. So he was sent to a series of detention camps um, run by the Department of Justice. These were different from the regular camps. Where you know, for the, the camp where my mother was sent was a, was a different kind of camp. Um, and he was considered a dangerous enemy alien. And um, my mother didn't see him for about two and a half years. Was he considered a serious? Uh, enemy alien because he worked for a Japanese company? Uh, it's He was a leader in the Japanese-American community, um, a business leader, so he was fairly prominent. So th- those were the men who were around it at first, um, you know, just as a, as a way, really, of, I mean, all the, the, the leaders of the community were taken away, so the Japanese-American community was really kind of emasculated and left leaderless. Um, So he was one of many um, who were taken away in that first roundup. Did you get to meet him or your grandmother? You know, he he died when I was eight. Um, And my grandmother, she lived to be almost 101. So I knew her for many, many years. Um, And my memories of him are as a very, very gentle man. Um, He he never talked about what had happened to himself during the war. Um, but I, I think I was too young to even know what my mother had gone through at the age of eight. Um, so I remember he was always reading. Um, he was always he, would, he had these uh, Japanese English dictionaries, and he would just underline words in red pencil. Um, he was always learning. And my grandmother, uh, she she had you know she had more stories to tell, but I, I couldn't. Her English w- was all right, but as she 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 got older, um, it degraded. Uh, so she was a tough lady. <laughs> she went through so much. I mean, she really kept the family together after the war when they came home to Berkeley, um, and she just she just went through a lot. She's just she's a survivor. <laughs> was your grandfather able to work after being called a traitor? No. Um, is traitor the right word or an, an, an enemy alien, I think is what you said? Yeah, no, they're, they're synonymous, I think, or at least in the eye of the government. Um, well, he was not, I, I, the reason that he was not able to work after the war was not necessarily because of what he'd been labeled, but it was because he really lost his health. We don't know exactly what happened to him in the camps where he was in prison, but he had uh, three strokes. Uh, when he came home. So he was just, he was not in good health. So he was unable to support the family. So my grandmother uh, went to work um, as a maid for um, wealthy white families up in the Berkeley Hills and supported the family. And she, up until then, up until right before the war, had been, you know, a fairly well-off middle-class housewife. She she didn't have to work. Um, so, but they lost all their money. Um, so they really had to start all over again. 
So there wasn't much you were able to learn from your grandparents. What about your mother? How old was she when she was incarcerated? And what stories did she tell? Yeah, actually, I want to say one thing I did learn from my grandfather, but years later, uh, after he died, was that we found this cache of letters that he'd written to his wife and children during the first year of the war in my grandmother's fireplace that she wanted to burn the day before we were moving her out of her house and into a residence for the elderly. And so that was the first time that I learned a little bit about what it was that he'd gone through during his experience of imprisonment during the war. But my mother, she would occasionally mention camp, but when I was very young, I didn't know what kind of camp she was talking about. I actually thought she was describing some sort of summer camp because that was really my only point of reference. But there were objects around the house from camp. So I remember we had these old forks that we kept in the back of the silverware drawer. And on each handle, there was my family's government-issued ID number. And so we only used those forks when all the good forks were dirty and in the dishwasher, and we never used those forks with company. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I began to want to know more about what it was that my mother had gone through. And when I actually began to write my first novel, she was in the early stages of her dementia. And because her... Childhood memories were fairly accurate for a while. I, I could ask her a lot of questions, and then at a certain point, I could not. So why did your grandmother want to burn her husband's letters? I think that she might have felt that they were dangerous to have around. She might have felt shame that he had been labeled a spy, basically, a dangerous enemy alien. Or she could have treasured them um, because he was her husband. I mean, the other things that we found... Actually, it was my aunt and uncle who found these things in the fireplace. Shoved up into the flue of the fireplace, they found my mother's white wedding veil and a pair of white silk gloves that she'd probably worn on her wedding day. And she was going to burn all these things. So it could have also been an act of rage that she was being forced to leave the house that she had lived in very happily for many, many years. Um, So she had a temper. (laughs) So I, I don't really know what was going on in her mind. What do these artifacts mean to you, the letters, the bridal veil? I mean, the letters to me, they were like gold. It was like opening a window into my grandfather's past and just seeing a side of him that I'd never seen before. And I used them when I began to write my first novel. But my mother had also not read the letters before, and she read them first, and she told me afterwards it was like reading a story. And I could read the letters because they were written in English. His English was actually quite good. And I think he knew that if he wrote in English that it would be easier to get past the censors um, because all the letters were were censored by the government. So I remember my grandmother once making the snipping motion and laughing. So some of the letters that she had received um, while she was in camp had been just, you know, cut to shreds by the censors so she couldn't read them. But if you wrote in Japanese, it would... They would have the letters would have to be translated when it take it would just take much longer the whole process and you know he was just a good man I think he was such a good man um, very patient very kind I later also learned that he because his English was very good he helped translate some of the Geneva Convention rules for the prisoners that he was with in the camps so they could assert their rights but I'm sorry that I didn't know him better when your family came back after the war was over did they still have their home. They did. They were uh, very fortunate uh, because most Japanese could not own property by law. 
So, but my, my grandfather, I think he bought his home in his children's name and they were American born and therefore U.S. citizens. So I think the deed was in their name. And then maybe when they turned 18, they could pass it over to him. And the house had been paid for. So they actually had, unlike most families, they had a home to return to. I mean, there was a, you know, there was a housing shortage after the war. So many Japanese Americans who returned from the camps had just had no place to live. So they would live in hostels or there, there were these makeshift trailer camps. It was just, it was very, very difficult, but they had their home, but it had just been completely trashed. Many things had been stripped <laughs> from that house, but it was theirs. People had, had broken in and stolen things? There was a kindly reverend <laughs> who had promised to rent out the house for them while they were away, but he was a crook, and so they never saw any of the rent money. So many people had lived there, obviously, while they, were, while they were gone, so the place was just, I think it was just a mess. What do you know about how your grandparents first came to the U.S.? Well, my grandmother, her father was a Methodist minister in Japan. So he came to America in, I think, 1927 for the World Sunday School Conference. And my grandmother was one of, I think, six daughters, but she was the youngest. So she was expected to stay home, never marry, and take care of her father and she wanted no part of that. So she asked if she could come with him to America to give a talk uh, about education. She, she, she somehow got a visa to come to America. I think that she might have bribed the you know, government officials. I think I remember saying that she sent them a bag of brown sugar, which was very valuable back then. But she got a visa to travel with her father. And then at a certain point, she bolted and knew that she did not want to go back with her father, but she had to find a husband. So... She gave a talk in a Japanese-American Methodist church, and I think it was about education. She was a teacher back in Japan, and then she put the word out on the QT to some of the women in the audience that she was looking for a husband. And she was introduced to my grandfather, and they had, a, I think, a very whirlwind courtship and were married shortly thereafter. He'd come over years earlier um, first to study. I think he studied English and law at UC Berkeley, but he never was able to finish because um, I think at a certain point he had to go to work um, to send money back home, I think, to his family. Um, but um, so she, uh, her father was enraged um, that she would not go back to Japan with him. So she was really estranged from her family. She never went back to Japan again. You know, even years later when she could have returned to Japan, she just refused to. She would always say, till the end of her life, America is the best, you know. I mean, she was able to carve out a life for herself in America. Not always a happy life, but it was, you know, it was her own life. She didn't have to stay home and take care of her father. And then, of course, like we said, you know, she spends, uh, what, three years in a Japanese-American incarceration camp. But um, but she still appreciated America after that. She did, uh, much to, you know, our, our surprise. She, she, you know, she, she, didn't, she didn't sound bitter. I mean, she, she was... She was just tough. You know, life was, I mean, life, I mean, she was born in 1900, right? So, you know, life was not expected to be easy back then. I mean, so I don't think she expected life to be easy. Um, and in America, she just, she just kind of met, you know, whatever obstacles were put in her way. And, uh, you know, and I think, I think she was also, people really liked her. Uh, I remember one story that she told, like every, every day, the bus driver would drop her off when she was coming home 
uh, from her house cleaning jobs. And uh, her house was not a stop on his route, um, but he would make a special stop in front of her house so she could get off there, you know. Um, you know, she she had pride in what she did, I think. Even if she was, you know, scrubbing people's floors, I think she she had a very, very strong sense of self. Julie Otsuka, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Terry. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Julie Otsuka, speaking to Terry Gross in 2022. The author's latest novel, The Swimmers, is now out in paperback. After a break, we remember author, editor, and publisher Victor Navasky, who died recently at age 90. And I'll review a new mockumentary comedy series from Charlie Brooker, the co-creator of Black Mirror. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Victor Navasky, the longtime editor and eventual publisher of the liberal magazine The Nation, died last week at the age of 90. He was known for his geniality and equanimity. As editor, he was credited with bringing in varied voices and perspectives, including writers Alexander Coburn, the British writer Christopher Hitchens, historian Eric Foner, novelist Toni Morrison, humorist Calvin Trillin, and feminists Kathy Pollitt and Katrina Vandenhuvel, who took over as editor in 1995 when Navasky became publisher. Under his tenure as publisher, the magazine doubled in circulation and turned to profit after years of unprofitability. He went on to teach at Columbia University and chaired the Columbia Journalism Review. Besides writing a memoir, Navasky wrote two well-received books. Kennedy Justice was about the Justice Department under Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. And his book, Naming Names, is considered a classic and was awarded a National Book Award. It's about the investigation of so-called Hollywood radicals by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Those brought before the committee were under the threat of jail and being blacklisted for refusing to answer questions about their alleged participation in communist activities. Terry Gross spoke to Victor Navasky in 1982, and they talked about naming names. What was it in your personal history that made you that interested in not only the climate of McCarthyism, but what motivated the people who did testify before you act to name names? Well, I don't know that it's a matter of personal history, other than that I did have friends whose uh, parents had been victims of the Hollywood blacklist. And I did, actually, now that you mention it, I worked in a summer resort in 1951 or two where uh, in the Adirondacks in New York State, where one of the guests was a man named J. Edward Bromberg, who was an actor in the old group theater. And he had been subpoenaed by the Un-American Activities Committee, and his doctor had given a certificate saying that he couldn't appear because he had some kind of heart disease. And he came up to the uh, mountains to, to after he didn't appear. And while he was there, uh, two... FBI men appeared, and their purpose was to see whether he was uh, engaging in water sports and doing other things that would prove that he was uh, could appear. And uh, they, and indeed, he was swimming, and 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 he was eventually did a, a little bit of summer stock, and they went back, and he was resubpoenaed, and uh, his doctor gave another certificate saying, "Hey, just a minute, there's a difference between." Uh, frolicking in the water and playing chess and uh, appearing in summer stock and, on the one hand and appearing before a committee of the Congress where 
The stakes are your ability to earn a livelihood if you don't cooperate or the necessity of betraying your friend because the, the litmus test at that point of your ability to work in Hollywood if you were accused of having been a communist was your willingness to go before one of these committees. And first of all, um, if you had been to say you were and that you're sorry and then they would ask you who else and you would have to name uh, who else. And if you didn't, you would declare it in contempt of Congress. Or you could refuse to do that and take the Fifth Amendment, in which case you would be blacklisted and couldn't work again. Or you could take the First Amendment, in which case uh, you would be cited for contempt of Congress and like the Hollywood Ten, perhaps be sent to prison. So uh, it it was a, an awful dilemma. And uh, they resubpoenaed J. Edward Bromberg. He went back and, and this time did testify. He took the Fifth Amendment. A few months later, he went to England and he, and he died and um, of his heart disease. And uh, I went that winter to the memorial service for him, and, and I was very moved by what had happened. But I, one of the speakers was Clifford Odets, the great playwright of the group theater who wrote Waiting for Lefty and Awake and Sing and other plays of the 30s. And there was all kinds of muttering and, and crying, and I understood part of what was going, and yet there was an undercurrent that I didn't understand. I mean, I understood why there should be such great sorrow and, and that uh, Bromberg was perceived as some kind of political martyr, and yet I really didn't know what was, what, there was something else happening there. And it wasn't until years later that I discovered that uh, Clifford Odets, who gave the eulogy at J. Edward Bromberg's funeral service, also named J. Edward Bromberg before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So there was that set of unanswered questions that um, I was interested in. I, I had done a lot of reading about the... I'd always been interested in the McCarthy period, I should say, and I went to Swarthmore College as an undergraduate and got out in 1954, which was the year of the Army McCarthy hearings. And instead of studying for my honors exams, I remember sitting and watching riveted to my television set and uh, uh, taping the actual summary speeches of the Army McCarthy hearings. I had read a lot about what happened in Hollywood and the blacklist, and there was one thing I couldn't understand, which was how so many decent, honorable, smart, talented uh, people who also had a strong uh, streak of idealism which had gotten them involved with the Communist Party in the first place. I understood they later, a lot of them got disillusioned, and, but nevertheless, they cared enough to join something, whatever their misunderstandings of it were, how those people could end up what on the surface looked like an act that doing something that was unconscionable and indecent, which was to betray their friends, to save their own careers at the price of their friends. And the odd thing was that in all of the literature about that period, there's a big gap. There, there were books, very good books, uh, about the blacklist. There were memoirs by uh, various people who came through it, but no one had ever gone to the informers, the people who named the names, and asked, why did you do it? And how do you feel about it now? So I was interested in doing that. I should think that most of the people who did name names did it mostly out of fear of like losing their job, not being able to support their family. Uh, were those mostly the reasons? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, I, uh, of, the, of those I spoke to, there were four different kind of themes that emerged in the conversations. And one of the themes was, yes, I, I, I was a victim of the terror. A second theme was uh, also shared in this this thing of, of I don't want my family to suffer. It was that I had a set of um, higher obligations 
than the obligation not to betray a friend. Either my obligation was not to let down my family, I was the sole source of support for my family, or uh, in some cases, in the case of Bud Schulberg, he said, you know, it's, you think you're a civil libertarian for fighting the blacklist. I was fighting something worse. I was fighting Joseph Stalin's death list. And I discovered that all these people that I had revered as a young communist, and he had gone to the Soviet Union to a meeting of the Writers' League over there, or a meeting of uh, an international writers' congress, had become non-persons, and they had been sent to the salt mines or Siberia, and I would prefer not to have got called up before the Un-American Activities Committee, but in terms of who is the greater evil, Stalin was a greater evil than McCarthy. Well, my answer to that, to Bud Schulberg is, well, Bud, yeah, but you can denounce Stalin without doing it, without strengthening the forces of domestic reaction, which goes back to the Sontag debate a little bit, that you, someone in your position could write books about it, you can make speeches about it, you can give money to organizations that are fighting and exposing uh, the nature of Stalinism. You do not have to betray your friends in order to make that point, and you do not, you know, it's it's a a diff- they're different issues, it seems to me. So that was a second kind of thing. One, I was a victim of the terror of the times. A second, that I was operating in accordance with some higher uh, principle. Third thing people said was, um, you know, uh, they deserved it. Maybe I shouldn't have done it, but I'll tell you something. They were so much worse than than what I did. What they did to me when I was in the party was so much worse than what I did to them by naming them before this committee that it's not a serious question you're asking me. And Kazan, the director who directed Arthur Miller in Death of a Salesman, his plays Death of a Salesman and All My Sons, and who directed, interestingly, On the Waterfront, which is this movie where, where, as you remember, Marlon Brando comes to maturity when he realizes his obligation to think on his fellow hoodlums on the waterfront, which was written by Bud Schulberg, who named names, and starred Lee J. Cobb, who named names. He says as one of his, although he says he doesn't want to talk about it, he then always talks about it a little bit. And one of the reasons he gives for uh, doing what he did, or one of the things he says, whether he calls it a reason or not, is that they betrayed him when he was in the, in the party, and they betrayed the ideals that they were supposed to stand for. And he gives as an example that in the group theater itself, which um, the party had a caucus, and that they would take the theater would vote on who should control the selection of plays, and all the communists would uh, vote as a block, and they would vote in the interest of the communist party rather than the interest of the group theater, and uh, that that kind of thing. And eventually, they kicked him out of the party, and and so he felt personally embittered and wounded. And he gives that rather than he wasn't trying to save his career. He could have worked on Broadway, and he understood that and all that. It's his reason for doing it. And uh, again, I mean, it seems to me. Revenge is a, well, it's a dubious social motive. You can't tell someone they're not entitled to their revenge, and yet you do not have to do it through the agency of a committee like the Un-American Activities Committee, which wrecked so many lives. So that was a third reason that they got their just desserts. And then finally, they would say something which wasn't really a reason as to why they did it, but almost without exception, everybody I spoke to threw in and by the way, you know, they already had the name, so I wasn't hurting anybody. Well, on the one hand, that if that's tr- it turned out to be truer than they understood because the, the uh, committee in, in the hearings began in 47. In 1955, they called as a witness a man who testified that he had been simultaneously the membership chairman of the uh, Communist Party in the Los Angeles area and a police spy for the Los Angeles Police Department. And at the end of every year, 
he would turn over a thousand names to the LAPD, which would share them with the FBI, which would share them with the Un-American Activities Committee. So they did have all the names, but the fact was that uh, until your name was mentioned out loud, you didn't lose your job. And uh, by by naming the names out loud and going through that ritual, I call it in naming names a degradation ceremony. But by doing that, what you ended up doing was was reinforcing their right to ask and making it that much more difficult for the next person to refuse and and conceding that it was okay for our state, which is supposed to be a democratic state, to have as its test of virtue your your willingness to betray your your friends. And that uh, test is one which totalitarian societies are is, is characteristic of totalitarian societies. Indeed, in the Soviet Union, we learned that the first two questions they asked in the purge was who recruited you and whom did you recruit? And but we're not supposed to do that. And so uh, that was the fourth kind of theme. Okay. So I didn't find um, any of the justifications given adequate to the circumstance. And uh, one of the problems in writing about this is that people say, oh, so you, what you're saying is that these are bad people and they're evil and all that. And then I quickly say, well, look, I, I'm not say- I'm saying something different. I tried to ask what is the right thing to do under the circumstances. Now, there were some very good people who did the wrong thing and there were some awful people <laughs> who did the right thing. And uh, I think that's a meaningful distinction, but it gets lost. Victor Navasky speaking to Terry Gross in 1982. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 1982 interview with Victor Navasky, editor and eventual publisher of the liberal magazine The Nation. He died last week at age 90. He was also the author of Naming Names, the classic account of the House Un-American Activities Committee accusing Hollywood figures of being communists in the 1950s. When we left off, Navasky was talking about the people who were brought before the committee. He said in his book he tried to ask what was the right thing to do under the circumstances. He said there were some very good people who did the wrong thing and some awful people who did the right thing. What does it mean? Well, I'll tell you a way that it came out. Um, Years later, uh, Dalton Trumbo made a a speech when he received uh, the Laurel Award, which is the highest award that writers in Hollywood can bestow on their peers. Uh, And this was after, and and he said on that occasion, 1960, in the late 1960s, Blacklist presumably died uh, by 1960. He said, uh, those of you who are too young to remember the Blacklist should study it because there's a lot to learn. But when you do so, uh, don't look for heroes and villains because... None of us was without sin. There are only victims. And uh, he, it was received at the time as a very healing and generous statement. But when I went out there to do research on first for an article and then, and then my book uh, and talk to Albert Maltz, who was another one of the Hollywood Ten, he greeted me with a statement denouncing Dalton Trumbo saying, uh, you know, to say that there were only victims that, that were equally victims of the people who named us is to take away the meaning of our lives. What do we go to prison for? It's like saying the guard and the prisoner at the concentration camp are both equally victims. And I took Maltz's statement to Trumbo for a comment. And Trumbo said, you know, Lillian Hellman says that, that 
forgiveness isn't my job. That's for the man upstairs. He said, well, I feel the same way about vengeance. That it's an unhealthy thing. And Kuroji said, and I can't say that a man who named names because the committee was going to reveal his homosexuality at a time when that was the greatest social stigma one could have, that I could tell him to do otherwise. I can't say that the woman who named names because she was the sole support of an infant and whose husband was in prison and who who had herself been abandoned as a child, I can't say that that woman should have risked abandoning her child by uh, taking a course, the course of action that we took, which was to go to prison. Uh, so what it means is that you have to look at each circumstance in and of itself and that you have to be a little humble in the face of what would you do if called up there. I guess life is a lot more complicated than um, it's. Uh, you'd like to think, think sometime when you just try, try to neatly sort things out and come up with theories to explain things that happen. Yeah, but, and then, but having once you get finished going through all this and, and showing these shades of gray and pink and orange and all that, I think it, or I felt that it was, it was important for me anyway to um, not shy away from the business of saying what I thought was the right and the wrong thing to do because the most important thing may be that there were people who knew how, how to behave when it counted. And, uh, you know, Hellman is a very controversial woman and on the left as well as uh, uh, in the larger community. And uh, I, I guess feel I agree with Murray Kempton about her who wrote that you know, she knew what to do when it counted. That was her summit. You know, she she got up there and she said, "I will. I would be happy to tell you about myself, but I will not bring trouble to innocent people. I, I cannot cut my conscience to fit the fashions of the day." Or how she put it more eloquently than that. But uh, and she did do what was right when it counted at personal sacrifice and risk. And uh, uh, and that that. Uh, those actions may uh, be important, not just as learning experiences if you study them, but because they make it difficult for it to happen again in quite the same way because because these people function as uh, exemplars, as moral exemplars. Victor Novasky, speaking to Terry Gross in 1982. The author of Naming Names was editor and eventual publisher of the liberal magazine The Nation. He died last week at age 90. Coming up... I review Kunk on Earth, a new Netflix comedy mockumentary series from Charlie Brooker, the co-creator of Black Mirror. This is Fresh Air. Netflix, in association with the BBC, has just unveiled a really good series with a really bad title. It's a five-part comedy mockumentary series, and its writers and producers include Charlie Brooker, co-creator of the fabulous Black Mirror anthology show. This new program is much, much lighter and stars Diane Morgan as a TV correspondent traveling the globe to talk about art, science, history, and other things. The correspondent's name is Philomena Kunk, which explains, but doesn't justify, this show's horrible title, Kunk on Earth. In the United States, most of us are experiencing Diane Morgan for the first time. Unless you saw her as one of the supporting players in the Ricky Gervais comedy series Afterlife, you might not recognize her. But in Great Britain, she's been on TV, especially playing one recurring character for years. 
Ten years ago, Black Mirror co-creator Charlie Brooker wrote and hosted a British comedy series, Charlie Brooker's Weekly Wipe. It was a satirical review of the week's news. Part Daily Show, and part, if you want to go way, way back, that was the week that was. One of the featured players on Weekly Wipe was Diane Morgan, who played a TV correspondent named Philomena Kunk. She's not very well informed, and she's prone to mispronunciations and malapropisms. But she says what she thinks, and what she thinks is often very, very funny. In the UK, the character was then spun off into several sequels, either limited series or one-shot specials. Kunk on Shakespeare, Kunk on Britain, Kunk and other humans. You can find some of them on YouTube, and they all have the same winning formula. Philomena is sent to real exotic locations around the world to offer her observations and interview actual experts, all of whom are polite and befuddled in equal measure. Kunk on Earth is in the same sweeping, visually stunning tradition of such historical documentaries as Civilization or Connections, except the correspondent and interviewer is less Kenneth Clark or James Burke and more Borat or Jiminy Glick. So that's the setup, and you don't have to have any prior exposure to Philomena Kunk to get up to speed instantly. The opening of Kunk on Earth cuts between scenes of Diane Morgan as Philomena standing amid quiet nature and loud city streets, establishing the premise of her newest TV show. This is our planet, planet Earth. 